My name is Umer. I'm Veronica. And I'm Remy. You're tuning in to a Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast. In this segment, we're going to continue the discussion we've been having about Western Canada. Uh, so what were we talking about at the end of the last segment? Well, I think we were talking about the influence of, sort of regionalism and the development of class politics. Right. Well, yeah, just to reiterate, though, like the point that you were making at the end of the last segment had to do with the fact that regionalism ends up being a block on different kinds of politics, including class-based politics that could have a, a more progressive kind of bent uh, as opposed to the kind of the kind of regionalism we're seeing with Wexit, which is, of course, completely reactionary. Yeah. Just reactionary posturing. It's not even politics mm-hmm. at this point. And the way that that sort of regionalism... Over, or overlaps with a first-past-the-post system, obviously, you know, it sort of accentuates that even more. Mm-hmm. So one of the, um, formerly the arguments were that, you know, first-past-the-post systems are an attempt to reconcile like the regional cleavage in Canada as that, that being like a primary, sort of a primary cleavage. But, you know, like many, many studies and stuff have been done since where it shows that actually regional or the first-past-the-post you know, it actually just accentuates um, these same kinds of, um, like these regional cleavages, and it makes it difficult to sort of develop a str- like a broader class politics. I mean, adding to the, the issues rather than contributing any answers yet, but we also have this huge urban-rural cleavage because of just how our population is distributed everywhere across the country. And I think that also presents challenges connected with this, but also partially independent from this issue, where we're having to deal with two very different types of populations, two different ways that people see themselves being represented, two different types of communities, and alienation even within this urban-rural divide and how the power gets distributed in very strange ways sometimes based on these um, ridings that have such different population components in different places. It also you know, gives a a very particular idea of like what constitutes a community. So it, it does end up being it's very like spatialized version of a community. Like so like the cleavages that exist within a space, those are basically essentially like suppressed or go unrecognized. And the idea is that those people are a community, which includes, you know, uh people like various classes, gender, race, etc. Right. So like but that so like the the community is spatialized. And now what you need is that community needs a representative you know, to defend its collective interest against these other people who are now a different community. And it's all based on, you know, the idea is in the imagining, it's 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 like a spatialized uh, idea of what's a community and, and who, and like spatialized idea of interest as opposed to, you know, something like class. Because for most people, like if you think about what is their actual, when it comes to like something like their material interest, you know, people's, the primary cleavage that affect people's lives. So usually, you know, within those spaces, right? Like for for renters versus owners mm-hmm. or, or, all, or all those things so right because the landlord in your community is going to have very different interests yeah. from you uh so yeah I, that's a good point though one sort of contrary example to the idea that you've posed that regionalism act, acts as a block to the development of progressive or, or radical politics in this country would be the case of quebec right quebec is the furthest along in the Canadian Federation, having a you know a the presence of a left and and having a, a a social democratic state to the extent that it exists in Quebec, and part of 
the way that that came about is through the development of you know Quebec nationalism, which is a which is not just a regional nationalism, but it's a kind of cult you know part of a cultural yeah. identity mm -hmm. of Francophone Canadians. But but it is a territorialization of what, uh, in my understanding, used to be a broader Francophone identity, right? Like mm -hmm. a pan Canadian Francophone identity. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you could say regionalism acted to spur on the development of progressive politics. Yeah, I mean, I, like I think when it comes to that case, like there is this um, overlap between certain kinds of like nationalism or the, that take, sort of take a left form. Like there was even, you know, in terms of in like the 70s, there was this brand, like branch of like sort of left Canadian nationalism, which saw candidates as, you know, also a colonized space like vis-a-vis -vis like the US. And a lot of this was coming from sort of these like kind of left social democratic uh, positions. So there is this potential overlap between something like nationalism and and left-wing politics. And let's say in the, in the Quebec case, if you're able to translate that into power at a provincial level, then you can, you know, you're able to pursue a social democratic project if that's what you're um, moving towards. But, you know, I guess like, so like one thing you could say is that the way that the bloc you know, continues to function today, though, is that they are able to continue to act as if they are speaking for Quebec, Quebecers. They're sort of tapping into this legacy of um, Quebec nationalism, whatever form it takes today, which is a different form than I've taken previously, while have it, having largely abandoned its origins in sort of left progressive politics, right? So this movement towards the center or the center right um, Actually, I think the, the the Quebec example is maybe a good example of how it has potentially hurt the development of sort of left politics across Canada more broadly, because before there was this idea that a lot of people on the left had that, you know, if there can be like a breakthrough, if Quebec can retain its sort of more left-ish mm -hmm. elements, that not channeling it into necessarily uh, Quebec separatism, but into something like a, like a, um, a, a federal left-wing party, you know, its prominence in terms of, you know, the electoral system in Canada would provide a very, very strong base for a left, you know, much stronger than the way that the conservatives sort of have this Fortress Alberta, something like a Fortress Quebec would be a much, uh, you know, much stronger basis for a left. So this was a lot of the, uh, you know, so when after 2011, when the NDP had that breakthrough, so people are like, oh, well, this is the kind of breakthrough that, you know, we've been looking for now. Is this sort of Quebec has left behind the old nationalist or sovereigntist politics, now has moved on to like the federal scene. And now that sort of the natural form that that would uh, transit into would be towards uh, more of like a social democratic party. And obviously that the the gain, those particular gains made in 2011 seem to have been um, short-lived, but, and we've also seen, you know, in Quebec, right-wing populism seems to be, um, you know, gaining strength. So, whether like the that analysis of Quebec as being the you know potential basis for a left wing project um, you know is questionable, but you know there was I think it is true that if the if a national left wing party had been able to you know tap into uh, or find its roots in Quebec that it would have probably been much better for sort of left politics more broadly in Canada. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're right. The use of Quebec nationalism. For the purpose of promoting a, a right-wing agenda is something that Anglophone 
Canada loves to complain about, right? Like this this whole secularism stuff that's used as a way to bash minorities. And yeah, with the election of the CAC in Quebec, we're going to see more and more of that. And actually, I, I came up with an, a name for uh, oh, you for, for Quebec. Oh, okay. Uh, when they got elected, do you guys want to hear it? It might be offensive, but uh, that's okay. Um, I guess you're going to have to decide the risks of it. Um, the name was Kakistan, but that I, <laughs> I would refer to Quebec as. Kakistan. I think you're allowed. To, I think I think you're allowed to, you're yeah. allowed to say that. Yeah, because yeah. they are. Yeah, the CAC. Oh man. <laughs> anyway, we should probably get uh, get back to Western Canada. <laughs> we'll talk about Kakistan. Another, another day, day yeah, with maybe some yeah, Kakistan experts. Yes. I mean, kind of linking, I guess, or bridging from this. Um, I guess when I was watching the federal election results, and I did think it was interesting how I would see different ridings, particularly in the territories throughout Alberta um, and even Saskatchewan and BC. And it was interesting to see just how, when they were counting the polls of different communities, how it could drastically flip who was projected to be the winner of that seat. And so I do think that there is this strangeness in these divides that we have in our country, how those are represented. And even underneath all of this Wexit stuff, this separatism stuff in the West, there's this further alienation where if you're living in a certain riding where the majority of people are conservative voters, where there's certain major cities in your riding that have, let's say, more upper class people, and you are not that, your voice won't be heard. So there's this alienation underneath these Western, in these Western provinces where certain voices get completely covered up by our electoral system, by the regional divides. And just like actually like something I was thinking about recently as well, even like, so like the one argument, um, like we, you mentioned all the different ways that, you know, this can be alienating for, you know, people who are within, caught within a rank. If you're like a socialist in a in a place where you know it's 99% conservative, then that means basically like you know your your votes low, your votes like useless or whatever that might be, right? But like the one argument that's usually made for first past the post is is because like, oh, like, well, the re- the region regions need to be represented or we need regional uh like representation. But you know, it actually doesn't even do that well, right? Mm-hmm. Because of if because you know, for example, if it, it entire regions will always be like completely blocked out of government, right? Like so even in the BC case, whichever side, whether it's the NDP or the Liberals won, whichever go- whoever formed government, one government one government would be entirely based on sort of like the coastal and yeah. the island. And yeah. the other one would be entirely the like basically like the interior and the north, right? And so and in the Canadian case, federally, uh, you know, right now like there's no no Alberta MP is in Right. Uh, government, like in government, right in the the ruling party, so it doesn't even do the one thing it says it's going to do. Uh, well, mm. it doesn't even do that at all. Yeah. So we should have proportional representation. Well, of course, yeah. It doesn't seem to be on the on the table. Not anymore. Yeah. Not after Justin Trudeau. No, but now, now reneged that, on his yeah, prob- yeah. promise and mm-hmm. just broke our hearts. Yeah, that was actually the one thing where I, he wasn't you know, going to do it anyway. No, he was never going to do it. Yeah. There's no way that he was going to do it. <laughs> But there was quite a few people, at least like in people I talked to, like not necessarily like that politically involved people, but like the, they didn't care that much about the pipeline. A lot of people are like 
can be pro pipeline, mm-hmm. not pipeline. They're just like, okay, that's just the way it is. But this, when it comes to the electoral reform, like that, you know, that was something that people considered to be like a like a significant sort of broken broken promise. Yeah, it, it didn't even feel like the usual politician's broken promise. It yeah. felt like a betrayal. Um, and I think it's the way that people were led to believe that this would happen. And just the way that it was handled when Trudeau decided he wasn't going to do it anymore, the way that he justified it, I think, really got under people's skin. Yeah. Just declaring yeah. that, no, it, it, we yeah. got elected. It's, yeah. it's fine. Like people don't want it people anymore. Don't like, want yeah. It now. Um, and I think the one thing that people, because like a lot of people do strategically, I think they do think that they should strategically uh, vote mm-hmm. and, you know, to prevent the conservatives. And one of Trudeau's campaign slogans was, strategically vote this time so you'll never have to do it again right basically mm-hmm. so that will come in we'll change it so this will be the last time and so now he's basically saying well actually strategically vote again but this time it's not gonna be the last time because i yeah not even yeah. Si- pretending i'm gonna change you know so that was like one of the i think that sort of thing sort of was one of the things that stuck to people in terms of the the whole shine of like trudeau as a progressive is uh like it definitely wasn't around uh this time mm-hmm. in the same way like he had to just abandon like the pretenses to a lot of that. Yeah, there, there was a very dismal character to the way that people were talking yeah. about voting liberal. Minus his most staunch lovers, um, you could really feel that there was just a lack of faith in anything and that people just felt they really had no choice. Yeah. And if, I mean, if you want to continue the, specifically the theme of like electoral reform and like what that sort of does, you know, in, in BC, again, there was last year, the that referendum failed again so that was like the third third referendum well, can you tell us uh, just frame it for us like so what was the referendum about referendum was if they wanted to consider changing from first past the post mm-hmm. um so there had been previous ones which people this were was vote- just in specifically in bc in, in, in bc yeah. so that was a election promise from the 2017 provincial election uh, basically, the NDP was in like a minority situation in order to be able to form government. They had to enter this kind of coalition with the Greens. And one of the conditions was pursuing a referendum on electoral reform. So, I mean, there's a couple of things we can say about that. One is, you know, I think right in, in the in the sort of the imaginary in our national consciousness, like the idea that we need to have a referendum to do these things. Um, whereas, you know, that is not like everyone knows referendums generally uh, loose. That's like the way re- referendums work, right? Some people could argue is that you know if if you campaign on electoral reform and you win, like why do you need to then also have a a referendum on on electoral reform? Like you know rather than you know just going ahead and and implementing mm-hmm. it. But why do uh, referendums, or is the is the plural of that referenda? I think it is referenda. Well, whatever it is. <laughs> um. Yeah, why do they not succeed? I mean, this is interesting, right? Because isn't it in Switzerland they have these constant yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. referendums and, and there's a place in North America where they have many referenda and that's California. And both California and Switzerland are not particularly uh, you know, progressive mm-hmm. places. Uh, like I think Switzerland is like the one of the only places in Europe, for instance, that doesn't have single payer healthcare. Yeah. And like, you know, mm-hmm. And part of that is just because every every time, you know, there's a referendum on these issues and for whatever reason, the progressive side keeps losing. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And in California, yeah, it's it's a similar kind of 
trend. Yeah. So why is it that the people, when you give them a vote on very specific issues, including in issues like, do you want a proportional representation system like this recent referendum in BC? Why is it that they yeah. vote? They well, vote well I mean, you know, people tend to like be sort of conservative in the sense like of the no change is usually mm -hmm. easier to get than than change, right? But just outside of so maybe that general aspect is there there was, for example, like in BC, there was the an, a successful referendum, which was getting rid of the HST. Right? And that was, you know, and to going back to like a PST and GST um, system. Mm -hmm. And that one was successful. And I think one of the biggest differences because that was supported by a lot of, it, it was about taxes, right? And that's something that people, you know, if you say, oh, like basically it was, this thing is going to raise your taxes. That's so. So it was, you know, even had like right wingers going against the, the HST. Uh, but in terms of like something like the electoral reform, I think it's so. In in two thousand five, actually, it did. You know, despite things we've said about how it's hard to get over fifty percent, it did get it over fifty percent. Got like fifty five percent. But it needed a like the threshold for what would constitute a successful electoral reform was so high. It was. I think like 60% uh, 60% total and also 60% in like 60% of the writing. So mm -hmm. it was like so like the it was basically what? Yeah. So like mm -hmm. the actual threshold of of changing something is so high and then you have an all out blitz to campaigning against electoral reform. You know, so this is now where you can get into, you know, who controls like the media or or you know the position of political parties. So even, you know, entrenched political parties don't want electoral reform, reform either. Like the NDP was very, very tepid in their support mm -hmm. uh, of actually, in 2005, they didn't, you know, support it like really at all. And this one was, it was, you know, I think it was such a lot of lip service that it's a disappointment that this failed, et cetera, et cetera. But really the entrenched parties also don't, uh, the ones who have the ability to form government or who think they have a chance of forming government also don't want electoral reform. Mm -hmm. You know, the business class, like, you know, don't want electoral reform because, in general, I think people do associate proportional representation systems with the possibility of more uh, left-wing politics. Because that, you know, if you just look at it, that seems to be the case: is that the success of left-wing parties tend to be higher in PR systems than they are in uh, non-PR systems, right? Mm. Uh, which tend to support sort of the, like more like central, um, sort of like these like big tent uh, parties. So and so in in two thousand five after the referendum came back and it was actually 55% total. It wasn't enough to cross the threshold, but it was enough to be like, okay, now we need another referendum. I think it took four years, so 2009. And by that time, it had been so long and there had been so much kind of um, anti-PR uh, propaganda. Like there was even like the system that was being proposed was a single transferable vote system. And in terms of what it would require from the voter was very simple, right? It's like a ranked ballot, is that it? Yeah, like, like they would. It's 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 a form of rank, but it's 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 not quite a. It's a form of a ranked ballot, okay. um, but it's a it's a particular type, and but there was so many like campaigns about oh this is too confusing for voters then people won't know who they voted for, and it was something that could have been in like five minutes you could explain you know how how it uh, at the time like five minute videos you know explain how it works and what the voter would have to do is very very simple. But that narrative became very strong. Like, oh, it's very confusing, you know. So, and by the time two thousand nine came around, now it, uh, it it dropped back down to like forty um, percent. Um, 
And so, what was the result in the most recent uh, referendum? It failed by quite a bit. Support was at 30-something or, or 40%. So, th- so afterwards, the NDP, the BC NDP was like, the issue of electoral reform is dead in BC. Like, the, the, yeah. the debate is settled. So, like, that's that was their response to it. And the only one who actually supports it is, uh, of course, like the Greens, because, mm-hmm. right? Well, this is, I, I love this, that, you know, that it would be so confusing for voters, <laughs> as if voters understand how the current system works. Yeah. Like, yeah. they don't, you know, like, we've been TAs in political science courses. My students don't know how first past the post works. Like, yeah. whenever it's come up, they're like, oh, so what do you mean? We don't vote for the prime minister? And, you, and you, it's <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. you know, when you start explaining it, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, there's there's a few layers here that you have mm-hmm. to get through. Um, because I guess in Canada, we follow along with whatever happens in American media and American political mm-hmm. culture. And so people in Canada think like, oh, they vote for president in the U.S., so we must vote for our prime minister. And we talk about it like we do, too. Yeah, like, in a know, sense, media, I think in people's minds, yeah. they are as well. Like people mm-hmm. think they're voting for Trudeau <laughs> yeah. or, or you know, yeah. uh, when they're voting actually for, you know, technically the MP. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, the confusing part of it is ultimately like party discipline being as strong as it is in Canada. You know, it doesn't matter who you're exactly. voting yeah. for. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. in a sense, you are voting for Trudeau. So yeah, there's the yeah, confusing yeah. part. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's yeah. really actually quite It's confusing. wrong, but it's right. Yeah. Because that's the way yeah. it actually works. Yeah. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 what, what, what the, you know, SV would have required was is just instead of, right, you know, drawing one X, you just go one, two, three. Like that is, it's mm-hmm. not that complicated actually in terms of what it would what it would require but that but that narr- it didn't doesn't really matter right like that, that's a narrative that it was just one of the many many things that was sort of launched at it and yeah so like it didn't you know there was like a like a all-out blitz to not get this thing um through well sorry man yeah <laughs> came close one 55 percent do you so. still vote in bc elections are you allowed you're not a resident anymore i suppose i actually I had a, my vote, like for the federal election, I was actually in BC at the time and I had oh. a voting card. So oh. that is where I, that is where I voted. And technically you are allowed to do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm still an Alberta resident. Yeah. Um, you just have to, I think it's with Revenue Canada, you decide where your residence is. So if you're a student, you don't have to declare it as the place you're literally living in. Um, right. You get the option. Yeah. If I had been here, I would have voted. I, I would have voted here. I just... Uh, like I voted in the Ontario provincial election. Uh, I didn't vote in the last BC provincial election, but for federally, like I would have voted here if I had been here, but I was in BC. Um, so that's where I, during the during the time, so that's where I voted. Man, this is what happens. <laughs> All the progressive students, they leave, they go back home. <laughs> this is why we get, you know, yeah. Doug Ford yeah. wins provincially and then the liberals... Though, I mean, sweep voting priority. within Toronto against Doug Ford didn't seem to yeah, do much anyway. No. <laughs> yeah. And I guess on the uh, the problems with elections topic, we could talk about um, Kenny firing the elections commissioner. Oh, right. Getting yeah. out of the position. Yeah. What's going on with that? So they rammed through Bill 22. I don't know if it was just a limit on discussion or how exactly. So what's they Bill 22 it. again? Um, so Bill 22 was the bill that took away the position of the elections commissioner, Lauren Gibson. And he was the person who was investigating the UCP, uh, United Conservative Party leadership election, where I think I mentioned this in the last podcast on this topic, but there was a bit of an issue and some suspect things going on the way that 
Um, the Wild Rose leader, Brian John, was seemingly sabotaged. They believed that uh, another candidate um, was running just to take him down, the kamikaze candidate. Um, so he was investigating this. He already had put forth a total of $200,000 in fines towards a few different people in the UCP party. So he's heading this investigation and then finds out, um, apparently he found out just by following the news, that his position is gone and he's not being rehired. Oh, he saw it on the news? Yeah, apparently he, <laughs> wow, did, he yeah. didn't get it in person. Oh. He just heard that his position is disappearing and he's the only one who's not having his position continue on. So apparently the chief electoral officer, that contract is going to be up and then the UCP will be able to appoint a new one, like whoever they want. And then that uh, chief electoral officer can either hire their own election commissioner by whoever they want to choose, or they don't have to hire one. They could just fulfill the role themselves or not. It's really, really up to them. So with this bill being passed really, really quickly, it means that the UCP is now in control of all of this. Um, another dramatic event that went along with this was Rachel Notley was kicked out of the oh, legislature because um, she accused, what's his name, Jason Nixon, the government house leader, um, honest name right there, Nixon, accused him of lying about what was going on with this position. And she refused to apologize. So the speaker told her she had to leave. So she was kicked out. So this is because of some obscure rule that you're not... Yeah, you're not allowed to accuse anyone of lying, mm. even if they are, apparently. Um, so you're not allowed to do that. She was kicked out. And she was making it clear that she just wanted people to know she was willing to violate this rule because she thinks that it's really important that people see this kind of underhanded thing happening with the bill, given the investigation going on. And she also has written a letter, apparently, um, to some official or other, because she wants to make sure, or she's saying she wants to make sure that the documents related to this investigation don't suddenly disappear or end up lost or anything like that. So she wants to make sure that we can keep tabs on where these documents are being stored, make sure they're staying secure, everything related to the investigation as this has already happened um, with this bill being passed. And of course, all the commentators, anyone in political science, um, Democracy Watch officials or people in that organization have all pointed out how this is a very obvious direct threat to democracy itself, um, even with our limited representational forms of it. Um, so it's a pretty big issue. Well, but this kind of thing, I feel like, you know, when Harper was in power federally and he would make some particular kinds of changes, you know, the left in particular, and even like centrist media, liberal media would be all like all up in arms about how this is going to like completely defile, you know, the way things work in Canada. And like what happened recently with uh, Doug Ford in Ontario and, uh, you know, him uh, redrawing the lines for mm. council seats in, in the city, in, in the city of Toronto. Um, and this was like a, a complete attack on democracy in Toronto. You know, how could Doug Ford do this? This is just the most horrible thing. And, you know, we like talk about it in these like sort of catastrophic terms, like, oh, democracy is going to end in Toronto because Doug Ford wants to redraw the lines. And like, of course, you know, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but when this stuff happens, I just, I get a little like worn out mm -hmm. by the, by the pitch that I think that it's talked about. And like, 
And Rachel Notley, I just, I can't take this person <laughs> seriously anymore. You know, after all that pipeline stuff. And like, and then when she got kicked out, she became like this, like, oh, you know, like all of the progressives. Oh, yeah. She's the uh, yeah. the angelic figure. Yeah. She's like the queen bee, you know? Everybody online is like coming out to defend how wonderful Rachel Notley is. And like, yeah, it's know. like the, it's like the, so this Trump phenomenon, right? Where anyone who criticizes <gasps> Trump, even if they're like the most absolute horrible person, mm-hmm. yeah. but as long as they're criticizing Trump, then like the liberals are, yeah, you know, yeah. just, you know, they could be like a war criminal or like, a, <laughs> I mean, and as long most as they of them are. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think I'm just always baffled at how people have already just so much faith in our system that they do really see it as a genuine democracy. When to me, something like this just shows how the people who are in power, they kind of just do whatever they want. And it doesn't even matter to the extent that they keep up appearances because in the end, what's there to stop them? Yeah. I think even from like, you know, from the left position, people, you know, we criticize like state or the politics, but even, I think even sometimes we maybe, um, retain these, some of these like liberal elements where we, where we almost like in our critiques of like, oh, the bourgeois state, the liberal state, we almost expect it to be more like sophisticated. Like we mm-hmm. almost think that like naked corruption is almost too like vulgar and that, it, that you know, so we, even then like we don't um, recognize that actually it's sometimes things are not that complicated. It actually really is just somebody can go in and do what they want mm-hmm. and like give a contract, you know, for their company to print some stamps <laughs> or, or, you know, like see that, that kind of just like outright corruption is open, like, you know, we're not necessarily, we're not necessarily good at identifying it either. Cause it almost seems like too, like, it's not like sophisticated enough mm-hmm. for uh, analysis. Yeah. And actually it's something sort of built into even the kind of analysis that Marx has, right. His sort of uh, approach to political economy or the critique of political economy doesn't include all of these things that grease the wheels of of capital and it's you know it's a relationship with the state which are absolutely necessary for the functioning of the system marx just abstracts that out from his analysis and i mean in a sense you kind of need to i suppose to to look at how the system works but uh, you know ultimately you need this shit how would these capitalists you know hoard up all this wealth without mm-hmm. without the the kind of corruption yeah, that yeah it's not just the logic of capital that's operating and like the you know so that's why it's like but this idea of oh the state works as like the what like the you know the executive committee of the ruling class like that you know that kind of analysis we're like oh that seems too um that seems like too like too simple it needs to be more complex of you know but sometimes it is just corruption or yeah. uh bribery or I was guess like you know and like yeah I don't think that we are like we we necessarily factor that in uh that well and like but like yeah and those are necessary like you said I think for the probably for like the actual functions of capitalism I think too there's a tendency sometimes where being on the left you again you criticize the state you criticize the whole system but in your practical politics you almost end up defaulting aware or not to this idea that the state is good the state is what protects us we need to bolster the state against the corporations against um, private interests so we have this weird kind of double tendency to be the state's biggest supporters and government involvement is good and very very much pro-state while we also then are offering this critique of the whole thing Um, so i think that is another thing 
to watch yeah. for and really think about. Yeah. You know, I, I was just thinking of this the other day. I think it's like some of us, like me included, uh, past, like we're almost like the left-wing versions of like those working class people who like vote for right-wing politicians, like for because, you know, for their future life as a millionaire. They're like, well, I want to keep taxes low so that when I'm a millionaire, like things are good for me. We're almost like sometimes we're, you know, once we take control of the state, you know, we need to set things up. So for once we take control, then, you know, the systems will be in place for us to do these things. Um, and so it's like, oh, like we, yeah, like we, we criticize like the state, but we're also like, oh, like, you know, we don't want to loosen the ability for us to pursue our progressive agenda for when we are the ones who are, mm -hmm. you know, in charge. Yeah, well, and you do want a rational bureaucracy, right? Yeah. Like you do want uh, some kind of a Weberian uh, modern state because if you don't have that, then you have Bolivia where the military doesn't march the orders of the civilian government. Uh, it has its own in intentions. Um, so, yeah. But you don't think that would happen here? <laughs> I hope not. Depends how radical you want to go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how do you guys feel about wrapping it up here? Oh yeah, any yeah. Other things you want to? Um, I didn't get to war room, but oh, I don't yes, know if let, we need to. If, you, if we can, if you want. Uh, I, sure, sure. Um, so yeah, the, everyone was talking about the war room, as it was called. Uh, Jason Kenny probably put it that way, um, but that was the, the term for it, and it was going to be built to fight against all this misinformation that's around against Alberta oil and gas. Um, fight those foreign-funded protesters and radicals trying to stop Alberta's oil from going to market, stop the propaganda that's happening all over the world against us. And um, then what they did was they decided to privately incorporate this war room, which they then called the Canadian Energy Centre. Um, so it's a private corporation, which means it is exempt from Freedom of Information Act requests. Oh, um, so wow. now no one can figure out then what they're actually wow. doing, what information they have um, using those means. Um, their argument was that it would prevent those foreign-funded enemies um, from getting any tactical advantage. So they have to privately incorporate this entity that is for specific UCP government propaganda funded by it. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole thing was, yeah, like in uh, from... Kenny's, you know, perspective was just a way to get at the environmentalists, right? Like yeah. the environmentalists who are endangering Alberta's national interests. Sorry, mm -hmm. that's not national, but you know, <laughs> some people would yeah. like it to be national uh, interest in, in trying to, you know, extract the oil sands and, and get it out to market. So that's the war room was initially an idea that he and his government had proposed. Was it p before the election? Um, I'm trying to remember. It's all kind of a blur right now, but it was either before or kind of right when they got elected into okay. that. That's when they started talking about preparing this. Um, so it was quite early on. Right. And, and to target like activists who are yeah. opposing pipelines and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it seems it literally is a, a propaganda machine where they're going to be um, doing research in quotes and then using that to put out news and information on social media showing the truth about oil. And there was a further bit of controversy because they were involved with a journalist, I think. Her name was Vivian Krauss. And she was known for 
essentially spreading lies about a lot of this stuff. Um, she was the one who was talking a lot about these foreign funded people um, pointing out activists as being paid off by different foreign bodies and things. And so it's all been this weird kind of propaganda war um, and controlling how Canadians, Albertans, people worldwide then view oil and those campaigning against it or those who even just are expressing any sort of criticism or environmental awareness about anything. Yeah. I don't know what's worth this, um, this, what is it called? It's called the, the war room. War or, room yeah. or officially Canadian Energy Center. Uh, so what's worse, this Canadian Energy Center or Trudeau's new cabinet, minister, the minister of the middle class? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, she represents me. Yeah. She represents all of us. Aspiring yeah. middle class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The downtrodden middle class. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Thanks for tuning in to this Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast. And thanks for being a patron of the podcast. We really appreciate your support. And we'll see you again soon.